Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Welcome back. Lately, I put the mic on a mic stand, and I'm precariously placing it to amplify the voice gain. I noticed that my pitch was a little high last time, and I'm sorry. I am actively learning how to use this fancy mic, along with learning how to edit the software. I really do apologize. Anyway, my mind is constantly racing on the different topics that I want to go over. Although all of these topics will be directly through the lens of Atlantis. I go to sleep every night to a lecture about mythology or ancient history. I learned in middle school that documentaries put me to sleep. As an adult, I use this as a crutch, resulting in countless hours of conscious and subconscious learning. When I wake, I reach over to my phone and I look, and to my surprise, but people keep listening to me rant about my inner monologues in regards to Atlantis. Again, your listening motivates me to make more. Even if my web browsing tab problem has gotten worse, maybe these episodes spark an idea in someone else's head which leads them to finding something new. I absolutely believe that this city was a real place, and I hope that I live long enough to see its rediscovery. Hopefully, you can share my squeals of delight as I read to you in a future article, Plato's Atlantis Found. Alas, this is just hyperbole enveloped in wishful thinking. The closest I'll get to it will be in my dreams, or on this podcast, with you, my friend. Thank you. Truly. Sharing this information sweetens the deal knowing you're in it. If you happen to get a moment, could you provide an honest rating for the content? It'll help generate and support new views. I'd appreciate it. Perhaps maybe you think I deserve a cup of coffee or a pint of beer for the content? If so, there's a spot to donate and I would greatly appreciate it. I'll make sure to raise one up and cheers to you. For this episode, I'll continue talking about Clato's Island in Atlantic City, and I'm going to use the help of the following authors, in order from oldest to youngest. Plato, a classical Greek intellectual, who is our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. Timaeus, one of Plato's dialogues, was written in 360 BCE. Apollonius arose. He lived approximately 10 years after Timaeus was written. He was a scholar on Homer and worked at the Great Library of Alexandria. He was best known for writing the Argonautica, an epic poem about Jason and the Argonauts and their quest for the Golden Fleece. Diodorus of Sicily, a librarian at the Library of Alexandria and a scholar of ancient Greek history living around 45 BCE. Last week, we left off on the outer zone of Atlantic City. For this week's episode, I thought we would focus on the center island, or Clato's Island. There are still parts of this puzzle that my mind fails to accept. It doesn't quite feel right, if you know what I mean. The puzzle piece feels close, and it's almost as if I could force it in, but we know it's not quite right. That's how I feel about parts of how Plato explains the layout of the city. I would love to hear your explanations. But anyway, here's Plato. The third wall, which encompassed the citadel, flashed with the red light of Horacalcum, 
There were guardhouses at intervals for the guards. The guards were appointed to keep watch in the lesser zone near the Acropolis. The most trusted guards of all had houses given them within the fortress closest to the kings. A citadel is called a fortress. So let's try and reword this to fit our vocabulary. The entry wall was brass. The middle zone had a ten wall, and the inner zone, or lesser zone as Plato puts it, is surrounded by an orichalcum wall. Within the orichalcum wall, guards were given houses, and the most trusted lived near the kings. Note, this also implies that the ten kings actually lived in Atlantic City, but they had rulership over the different portion of the island territory. The job of those guards were to guard the inner zone. The inner zone was closest to the highest point in the city, which is the Acropolis. Plato goes on to talk about the center island and how it looked. The palaces inside the fortresses were constructed in the following manner. In the center was a holy temple dedicated to Plato and Poseidon. That temple remained inaccessible and was surrounded by an enclosure of gold. This is the spot where the family of the ten princes first saw the light, and the people brought their offering to each of the ten, which was an annual tithe of fruits of the earth in their season. At the very beginning, they built the palace in the habitation of the god and their ancestors. They continued to ornament the palace in successive generations, every king surpassing the one who went before him to the utmost of his power until they made the building a marvel to behold for size and beauty. There were so many different great offerings from the kings and private persons. The offerings were both from the city itself and from foreign cities over which they held sway. The palaces answered to the greatness of the kingdom and the glory of the temple. The altar, matched in both size and workmanship, corresponded to this magnificence. What's interesting to me is the similarities of this story to Hesiod's Theogony and how he describes King Triton in the following way. And of Amphitrite and the loud roaring earthshaker was born a great wide ruling Triton, and he owns the depths of the sea, living with his dear mother and the Lord his father in their golden house, an awful god. Again, the commonality between Atlas and Triton, and both cities are said to be underwater. Here's Plato with that same golden temple. The holy temple dedicated to Plato and Poseidon remained inaccessible and was surrounded by an enclosure of gold. Now, if we're trying to put a timeline on these myths, the story of Jason and the Argonauts takes place one to two generations before the Trojan War. One of the crew members was Peleus, Achilles' father. Achilles was the main hero of the Trojan War, and it all depends on how old Peleus was when he married Thetis. Thetis was an Oceanid, or a daughter of Oceanus. Thetis is also powerful in her own right, and more than just some lesser nymph god. Another one of Jason's crew on the Argo was an older Heracles. Presuming Atlantic City had already sunk by the time Jason visited Lake Triton, if there was once a golden palace above ground, and now there's a golden palace below ground, it isn't a stretch to presume that they are both somewhat connected. Fun fact. 
ancient Troy has actually been found, and archaeologists have been studying it for over half of a century. Poseidon settled them in part of the island which is said to have been the fairest of all plains. No man could get to the island, for ships and voyages were not yet invented. Poseidon, being a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island. He brought up two springs of water from beneath the earth, one of warm water and the other of cold. He caused every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the fertile soil. Do you remember that paragraph from Plato? Well, look at what the descendants did with those springs. In the next place, they had graciously flowing fountains, one of cold and another of hot water. The fountains were wonderfully adapted for use because of the pleasantness and excellence of their waters. They constructed buildings about them and planted suitable trees. They also made cisterns, some open to the heavens and others roofed over to be used in the winter as warm baths. A cistern kind of looks like a giant decorative pool, and it's meant for collecting rainwater or other water for future use. This particular case, I guess, it's the spring water. Then we have this little tidbit from Plato. The king's baths and the baths of private persons were kept apart. Again, here's more proof that this is where the ten kings lived while they ruled a different territory or at least this was their winter home. Also, what causes hot springs exactly? It's the heat from the magma inside the volcano. This would also give merit to the fertility of the soil. Anyway, back to Plato. They had separate baths for women and for horses and cattle. Each bath, they gave as much adornment as was suitable. The water which ran off, some was carried to the grove of Poseidon while the remainder was conveyed by aqueducts along the bridges to the outer circles. That was a juicy sentence. First, there were at least four separate baths. One for kings, one for private persons, the other for women, and another for animals. Though I do think that there were more, we do know, at minimum, there should be four. The Atlanteans also had aqueducts that transported the overflow from the fountains at least I hope it's the fountains and not the baths, to the middle zone and the outer zone, along the bridges which connected those zones. The Grove of Poseidon is another interesting tidbit of information. A grove is a small treed area with a well-manicured lawn or, or no weeds or bushes, just happy trees and happy chirping birds. Back to Plato. The Grove grew all manners of trees of wonderful height and beauty, owning to the excellence of the soil. There were many temples built and dedicated to the many different gods, and there were gardens. So, that's interesting. Atlantic City Atlantis wasn't a monotheistic society, meaning they didn't just worship Poseidon. They recognized and worshipped other gods as well. We have very little else to go off of, but we do know that Poseidon was their patron god. Titan Atlas also had a grove of trees that were highly sought after. Here's a snippet from Apollonius of Rhodes in Argonautica with Jason and his Argonauts. The Argonauts port their ship across the Libyan desert. They set her, the ship Argo, down from their shoulders in the Tritonian Lagoon. 
Once there, their first concern was to slake the burning thirst that was added to their aches and pains. They dashed off like mad dogs in search of fresh water, and they were fortunate they, the Argonaut, found the sacred plot where, until a day before, the serpent Laden, a son of the Libyan soil, had kept watch over the golden apples in the Garden of Atlas. While close at hand, and busy at their tasks, the Hesperides sang their lovely song. But now the snake, struck down by Heracles, lay by the trunk of the apple tree. Only the tip of his tail was still twitching. From the head down, his dark spine showed not a sign of life. His blood had been poisoned by arrows steeped in the gall of the Hydra Lernean, and the flies perished in the festering wounds. Since I've brought up both Peleus and Achilles, I think it's time to go over ancient Greek naming conventions. Last names were not yet a thing, so according to Greek tradition, the given name was often accompanied by the father's name, if the child is legitimate, a tribe associated with the place or city of origin, if the child was illegitimate, the mother's name was used instead. They're starting to sound a lot like Game of Thrones with Jon Snow, huh? You could be referenced by your given name, or child of father name, or child of mother name. For example, Peleus and Thetis had a son named Achilles. Achilles can be called Peleides, or child of Peleus. Alternatively, he could also be called Theides, or child of Thetis. The Titan Atlas and Hesperus had some daughters, and those daughters are both called the Hesperides and the Atlantides. It is suggested that it's Titan Atlas, but they're ships, and those ships keep on throwing me off. Unless Titan Atlas was still making babies while holding the sky, I mean, where there's a will there's a way, I suppose. It's also possible that Atlas and children do not age and, you know, we have that whole immortality thing. Diodorus does go on to explain a bit more on this garden in the following passage. But we must not fail to mention what the myths relate about Atlas and about the race of the Hesperides. The account runs like this. In the country known as Hesperides, there were two brothers whose fame was known abroad. Hesperos, or Hesperus, and Atlas. Now, Hesperos begat a daughter named Hesperus, who he had given in marriage to his brother, in whom the land was given the name of Hesperides. And Atlas begat by her seven daughters, who were named after their father, Atlantides, and their mother, Hesperides. And since these Atlantides excelled in beauty and chastity, Cyrus. The king of the Egyptians, the account says, was seized by desire to get the maidens into his power, and consequently, he dispatched pirates by sea with orders to seize the girls and deliver them into his hands. Heracles came across Bolsaris in Egypt and slew him. It's also worth noting that Bolsaris is also considered a son of Poseidon. But anyway, back to Diodorus. 
Meanwhile, the pirates had seized the girls while they were playing in a certain garden and carried them off, and fleeing swiftly to their ships had sailed away with them. Heracles came upon the pirates as they were taking their meal on a certain strand, and learning from the maidens what had taken place, he slew the pirates to a man and brought the girls back to Atlas, their father. And in return, Atlas was so grateful for Heracles for his kindly deed that he not only gladly gave him such assistance as his labor called for. Again, we have sails and ships. To complicate matters, the name Heracles isn't even a real name. It's a nickname, kind of like Superman. It translates roughly to Hera's glory, or another way to think of it, for the honor of Hera. So this Superman could be anyone from any period of time. I'm planning on breaking down the stories of the Heracles at some point. <laughs> Speaking of Hera, Zeus's wife, she had an orchard too. Here's some information from Wikipedia. The Garden of the Hesperides is Hera's orchard in the west, where either a single apple tree or a grove grows, producing golden apples. According to legend, when the marriage of Zeus and Hera took place, the different deities came with a nuptial presence for the latter, and among them the goddess of Gaia, with branches having golden apples growing on them as a wedding gift. Hera, greatly admiring these, begged Gaia to plant them in her gardens, which extended as far as Mount Atlas. The Hesperides were given the task of tending to the grove, but occasionally picked the apples from it themselves. Not trusting them, Hera also placed in the garden an immortal, never-sleeping, hundred-headed dragon named Laden as an additional safeguard. For now, I'm going to leave you with this all-too-familiar quote from Diodorus. The Amazons were on an island, which, because it was in the west, was called Hespera. Their home lay near Ethiopia, and that mountain, called by the Greeks, Atlas. Atlas, which is the highest of those in the vicinity, impinges upon the ocean. By the shore of the ocean, which surrounds the earth, lay a marsh. In the marsh, named Tritonus, after a certain river Triton, which emptied into it, is where the Amazons made their home. This island was of great size and full of fruit-bearing trees of every kind, from which the natives secured their food. It also contained a multitude of flocks and herds, namely goats and sheep. The owner of the flocks received milk and meat for their substance, but they did not use grain because the use of this fruit of the earth had not been discovered among them. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9pm. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. 
Here's a clip for next week's episode. For the sea was raised by an earthquake, and it submerged he-like, and also the temple of Poseidon. And Eratosthenes says that he himself saw the place, and that the ferryman said that there was a bronze Poseidon in the strait, standing erect, holding a hippocamp in his hand, which was perilous for those who had fished with nets. Hippos, meaning horse, and campos, meaning sea monster. On a winter's night, in 373 BCE, an earthquake struck the region around the Gulf of Corinth. This, in and of itself, was not especially noteworthy. Earthquakes are, after all, relatively common in that part of the world. What was more noteworthy, however, was the fact that the particular quake appears to have triggered the phenomenon known as soil liquefaction. 